Uh, let's pray one more time together. Just ask God to bless our time, okay? Let's pray together. <laughs> Father, Lord, we come before you now, and we are so grateful that uh, you have given us your word to know, to understand. And uh, Father, we just pray that you would give us great illumination now as we study it, as we study to uh, prove, show ourselves approved unto God, workmen that doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We pray, God, that you would just help us, Lord, in our understanding of the plan of redemption, uh, understanding of the, the unfolding of your story, unfolding of uh, redemptive history, Lord, and its culmination in Christ. We pray, Father, that you would just uh, give us uh, wisdom, Lord, beyond our years. Help us to understand your word, Father, for the benefit of our soul, Lord, and for the advancement of your kingdom, Lord. Thank you. We ask you bless our time now in Christ's name. Amen. 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 So, uh, I'm taking you to a familiar passage. Can't get enough of Hebrews. So, hopefully you're there. This is where we'll be. Hebrews chapter 1. We're looking at verses 1 through 4. And what we're doing is, um, again, we're just showing another critical passage of scripture. I'm trying to kind of hit all of the high points as far as um, redemptive historical hermeneutics goes. And what we've been kind of arguing for, or at least trying to uh, present uh, as far as what does a redemptive historical hermeneutic look like. And what we talked about is that redemptive historical hermeneutics has to do uh, with, for lack of a better term, a transtestamental gospel. That is, the gospel that transcends uh, the testamental divide, both Old and New Testament, Old and New Covenant, you have uh, the gospel being presented to us, and that is what the authors of the New Testament are arguing. So we looked at Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. The gospel there was the gospel that was according to the scriptures. It was the gospel that was given to the prophets, given to the fathers. Uh, also, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we looked at that verse, verses 1 through 4. I don't know what it is with 1 through 4, but so far we're... We've got a good track record. You notice that? Romans 1, 1 through 4. 1 Corinthians 1, uh, 15, 1 through 4. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. I'm not doing it on purpose, guys. It's just what the Bible gives me, you know. Um, but again, it just, it's showing us that, and Hebrews does the same thing now, that what Hebrews is focusing on, like these other passages, is really the redemptive historical nature of Revelation, dealing specifically with the dual estates of Christ. So... Let me just uh, get rid of cyber hymnal over here for a second and, uh, and just remind us when we're talking about the dual estates uh, of Christ, uh, what we're saying is uh, not that Jesus is both human and divine. Uh, that is uh, a different duality. That is a hypostatic union, right? That is dealing with Christ being fully God, fully man. The dual estates of Christ really have to do with Jesus's a state of humility uh, and his state of exaltation, right? And what we find is that the authors of the New Testament are suggesting that the Old Testament presented the gospel with regards to the dual estates of Christ, which is really remarkable if you think about it, that in the Old Testament, um, that's exactly what is being prophesied uh, about Jesus is these two estates. What is his uh, state of humiliation? What is his state of humiliation? When people talk about that, what does that refer to? Uh, that he that he became a man. Anything else? That he died on the cross, or he 
suffered, mm-hmm. right? And that's what this state of humiliation is all about. Well, probably one of the most magnificent passages in the New Testament on the dual estates of Christ, to me, would be Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, where there the Apostle Paul says, you know, that Jesus... Um, became as a servant, you know, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, right? He became as nothing, as it were, right? Uh, and then he, he he suffered and he died and God exalted him, right? To, uh, and gave him the name above all other names, that at his name every knee shall bow, right? So what a perfect picture of the humility and the exaltation of Christ right there in Philippians chapter 2. But what's amazing about what we're, what we're looking at here is that these dual estates is something that according to the New Testament authors, the Old Testament presents to us. (laughs) So we looked at many, many, many passages last week in the Old Testament, and we'll look at some more here today that reveal that to us. So as we go to Hebrews now and try to come to the same conclusion, um, there's three things I want to point out about Hebrews, and that is all surrounding Christ, Christ as revealer, Christ as creator, and Christ as redeemer. That is the way that the passage unfolds. Uh, somebody want to read that to us? Uh, some, who's there? Anybody there? Uh, Scott, please read verses 1 through 4. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he spoke to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. <clears throat> and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than them. Yes, thank you. <clears throat> um, really, um, and I point this out every time, you know, we go to Hebrews and, and some of these passages, but... Uh, these verses, 1 through 4, are really kind of like Hebrews' own table of contents for the book of Hebrews. If you want to know what the book of Hebrews is really all about, verses 1 through 4 is critical. If you just wrap your mind around what is being said there, uh, everything else in the book of Hebrews is an exposition of that. You know what I mean? Think about where we've been here recently in the book of Hebrews. I mean, chapter 8 all the way to chapter 10 is really the covenantal heart of the book of Hebrews, and what is it but an exposition of this phrase, when he made purification of sins, right? I think that's what Hebrews 8 through 10 is all about, right? Showing the once for all sacrifice of Christ, and how that purifies his people, and how he comes in fulfillment of the old covenant, how he replaces the old Levitical law, the old Levitical priesthood, the old Levitical sacrificial system, all of that, and it's right there at the beginning of the book of Hebrews. So uh, that's what Hebrews is doing. It's just expounding on that. But uh, uh, Christ as revealer now, this, this first instance, um, is found in that phrase there in, uh, in verse 2 where he says, In these last days he has spoken. God has spoken to us in his Son. God is the subject. In these last days God has spoken to us in his Son. What Hebrews does is that... <clears throat> It takes Jesus and shows that Jesus is not only the content of supernatural revelation, but Jesus is also participating now directly in the revelatory process, right? Now, 
this is a big test for y'all right now. <laughs> Can you tell me in the book of Hebrews where it is that Jesus reveals or speaks or partakes of the revelatory process? Where is Jesus speaking uh, according to the book of Hebrews in the Bible? Where, where, where can we find some of this? Numbers? No, in Hebrews. Oh, in Hebrews. Yeah. I mean, this is a bit of a more specific question other than, well, Jesus inspired the whole Bible. Okay, well, that's an easy way out. No. <laughs> I'm asking you for a specific place in Hebrews where Jesus participates in the revelatory process. Right? Hebrews 2. Okay, where at? Um, 12 very good that is that's absolutely right hebrews chapter 2 verses uh 12 to 13 remember because it says uh for this well verse 11 really for which reason he is not ashamed watch this to call them brethren and here it is talking about christ saying and then christ is credited with saying I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise, which is a reference back to Psalm uh, 22. And what's magnificent about Psalm 22 is when you think of the life of Christ, when did Jesus quote Psalm 22? Anybody know? When did Christ quote Psalm 22 in his life, in his, uh, in his ministry, in his life? You know, Chris? On the cross. On the cross. And so uh, we could call this the Psalm of the Cross. Right, because it was on the cross that Jesus actually uttered the words, uh, different words of Psalm 22. Amazing, right? And uh, here, what he's saying is that he had to do that in fulfillment of his messianic calling. Uh, just remarkable. Anywhere else in Hebrews where Jesus is the revealer? Oh, but, um, real quick, just yes, ma'am. Just something that was interesting because on Wednesday we were talking with the ladies about the Holy Spirit and not being an impersonal force, mm-hmm. but you know. Um, being a he, and it was interesting because, you know, what Miriam just said in Mm -hmm. Hebrews 2, that Christ is speaking, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then when you go over to Hebrews 3, you see the Holy Spirit speaking. That's right. In verse 7 of chapter 3, and then it's funny, if you skip over to 5, then you see the Father speaking. That's right. You are my son. So I never had seen that before. That's right, that's right. So the whole Trinity speaks yeah, in Hebrews. Yeah, yeah. Explicitly explicitly says that he speaks, right? Anywhere else, Mike? Hebrews 8. Hebrews chapter 8, where? The high priest, I can see the throne of the heavens. Well, that is talking about Christ's exaltation, right? But where in Hebrews is Christ actually speaking or credited with speaking? What's that? 10-5. Ten 10-5, five. Ten five, absolutely. That's the one I was thinking about. Chapter 10, or is that where you were going? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, 10.5, therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, talking about Christ, a sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a, a body you've prepared for me. And, um, you know, verse 7, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Right? That's, uh, that's uh, Hebrews basically saying the words of the psalmist uh, actually do not reach their ultimate rel- revelatory power or, um, you know, potency until Christ uh, can properly utter these words in prophetic fulfillment of what the psalmist was declaring there. Just really amazing, right? Uh, so what you have here is Christ uh, not just uh, being the content of supernatural revelation, but also participating in the revelatory process. And what's important for our study of redemptive historical hermeneutics is that what Christ reveals is connected 
to what came in the past, right? You know that means redemptive history is all about um, the history of Scripture. So let's look back, Hebrews 1. Again, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. And so right there, um, it's not so much that God, when he spoke through his son, God is necessarily speaking something different in terms of it is a different um, quality of revelation. Right? It is not a different quality of revelation that is coming through the son. Uh, we could say, and some theologians have pointed out, it's not so much an issue of quality as much as an issue of quantity. Right? That what has come in Christ is fullness. Right? That he came to reveal um, the, the fullness of God's purposes, the fullness of the gospel, right? Um, going back to what we said a while about, you know, a while ago about what Voss says in his book. I read you a, a lengthy quote, but I'll summarize it. That in the Old Testament, we had the gospel in imperceptible seed form. Remember? You guys remember me saying something about that? Where in the Old Testament uh, writings, what we have is the gospel in the form of seeds, little seeds, even if they're imperceptible to us at the time as far as the fullness of their application and their implication. You see what I'm saying? And so what Christ brings now is fullness, right? Fullness, total fullness. Um, I'm thinking here of scriptures like John chapter 1, right, verses 14 through 18. And there, again, we see fullness coming through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth, right? Uh, Jesus Christ has seen uh, uh, the Father, and he has exegeted it for, for us, right? The Father, the heart of the Father, things like that. So uh, these two things are being compared here. Um, this phrase, as you may have seen here, uh, long ago, and then you see in verse 2, these last days. And so what God was speaking long ago is tethered to, it is connected with what God is now speaking in the last days. There is, a, there is a bit of contrast, but there's also continuity, right? The contrast is one from the, if you would, from, from uh, uh, something that is, um, that is begun or what was promised to now what is being fulfilled. That's why when Jesus comes, um, his coming is characterized as the time of fulfillment, Right? Let me read you some scriptures here. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Now, the NASB doesn't do the best job here, but the Greek word here is important. He says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account, this is Luke, of the things accomplished among us. Um, the word that's used there is the word uh, plerao, which means to fulfill. Uh, so what Luke is saying, what he's introducing is that what came in Jesus, the account that he is now getting ready to render to Theophilus, right, is dealing with what was fulfilled among us. You see that? So the age of fulfillment. Uh, Jesus says this exact same thing in Luke 4.21. He says, after quoting Isaiah 61, he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. 
So in the coming of Christ is the coming of the age of fulfillment. Uh, that's the best way I could put it, right? Um, any other passages that suggest the same thing that you can think of? I'm thinking of one big one, right? The idea that in Christ comes the age of fulfillment. What was spoken long ago in these last days has to do with fulfillment. See what I'm saying? Anybody? Anyone? I'm thinking of Galatians 4, right? Galatians 4.4. 4. It says, but in the fullness of the time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So Jesus comes at the time when fulfillment is ripe, when prophecy is ripe, when God is going to act, when God is going to move. And this is, I think that verse right there, uh, if you turn, or just, I can read it to you, but in Acts chapter 7, you remember we talked about Stephen's sermon, uh, his his biblical theology masterpiece, really what we could, that's what really what we could call it. But in, um, in Acts 7, as, oh boy, where's that, where's that verse? Acts seven seventeen, I see Galatians 4 and these kinds of passages in the same sort of redemptive stream as what is said here in Acts seven seventeen. Watch this. But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. So, in other words, what, what Stephen is highlighting there is that the time was, was increasing in fulfillment, right? It, the time of the promise was drawing near, and therefore God acted in redemptive acts, right? Namely through the exodus, So in the same exact way, as the time of fulfillment was drawing near in Christ, God acts one more time. One greatest redemptive act of all time in sending forth his son, born of the law, born of a woman. All of these different things. Um, I put down here that Christ is something of a type of Moses with respect to being the revealer. Um, And I'm thinking here of... Of, of the fact that Moses, like Christ, had a unique revelatory relationship with God. Now, of course, I'm thinking here mainly of Jesus as Messiah, as the man Jesus. Uh, obviously, as God, he is omniscient, he knew all things. But just his role, his calling. Um, if you would, turn with me to Numbers 12. Numbers chapter 12. And... Um, We'll go from here to look at some other things. Numbers chapter 12 is important because it's amazing why God does this, right? God in Numbers 12 makes it very clear that Moses possessed a unique revelatory relationship with God. Uh, Verse 6, hear my words. He says, if there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Watch this now. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful, watch this, in all my household. What does that remind you of? Hebrews. Remember? Hebrews 3. Hebrews 3, 5, and 6. That's right. That's exactly right. That Moses, who was faithful in all of his house, Jesus is faithful in all of his house. Right? Whereas Moses was faithful as a servant, Jesus was faithful as a son. Right? 
So um, you have a comparison there from the lesser to the greater. So same thing here, right? With him, he says, watch this, with him I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, not in dark sayings, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then are you not afraid to speak against my servant, uh, against my servant, against my servant, against Moses? There you go. I thought, I thought that was repeating. <laughs> but um, what, what does this remind, what, what other passages does this remind you all of? He beholds the form of the Lord. I speak to him face to face, mouth to mouth, as it were. What, does that remind you of anything? No? John 1. John 1. Absolutely. Let's just just go there real quick because I think the parallel is very, very close, right? And the context is very close because you also have in John a reference uh, to Moses, right? So you have kind of the same sort of contextual ideas going on here, right? The word became flesh. He dwelt among us. Watch this. We saw his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him, crying out, This is the one of whom I said, He who comes after me is higher is a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his, of his fullness uh, we have all received grace upon grace. Watch this. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now this is the critical passage. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is the bosom of the Father, in the bosom of the Father, he has explained them. So, in a sense, what Moses was given to experience was unique, but guess what? It was limited. It was limited because I think it was typological. It was limited because I think it was pointing forward to the time where a greater prophet than Moses would not not so much see a form of the Lord, right? But he is at the very, he, it says, he is at the very bosom of the Father. And, and notice that both have to do with seeing. Moses beheld the form of the Lord. But here we're saying, uh, John is saying, no one has seen God at any time. And what's the answer to that? The answer to not seeing God is something even that surpasses sight, Right? which is intimacy here. The only begotten God who is at the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. See, he doesn't just behold God, see God. He's in God's bosom. In other words, he is in the closest possible association with the Father imaginable. He, he, he dwelled for all eternity where Moses, when he asked, let me see thy glory, right? What Moses asked, Christ had that access for all eternity. You see, that's, that's what's, uh, to me, very, very amazing. Any questions, comments, statements, anything else? Um, I just have to say, yes, what, ma'am. What's even more amazing, I don't want to say than that, but in addition to that, is that we're in Christ now, mm-hmm. which is almost like, you know, mm-hmm. that same sort of language, isn't it? Like, we're, we're, yes, we're now yeah. that abide, that union. Yeah. So he lets us share in that. As he was in the Father, now we're in him. That's right. So our spirit, you know, like Romans says, should yeah. testify, you know, our spirit yearning, crying out, right. and his spirit interceding. Amen. John, I think it's John seventeen twenty that says um, that they may see your glory, right? Um, in his prayer. Yeah, yeah, in his high priestly prayer there. Um, but let's move on next here to Christ as creator. Because I don't know about you guys, 
if I'm honest with myself, every time I've come to this passage, I usually come here for the purpose of proving that Jesus is divine, right? We go to this text right here to prove that because Jesus is creator, therefore we make an argument for the deity of Christ, right? Uh, that's where I go. I talk to Jehovah Witness or something like that, right? Or a Muslim, right? I show them like, look right here. He created all things. He's the exact representation of the Father, right? He's, he's, what does it say there? He's the radiance of his glory. He's the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power, right? Um, is there anything else going on with that language? That's That's kind of what I... Uh, wanted to know as I was reading this. And you know, in fact, I think there is. I think the author of Hebrews here is not simply trying to make a case for Jesus being divine. Okay? To be honest with you, I think the audience of Hebrews was already convinced of that. Right? But notice there's an exegetical detail here that's very important. The, the chapter begins and ends with a critical Old Testament passage. And it's it's Psalm 110. You remember what Psalm 110 is about? I've I've harped on this over and over again, right? Psalm 10 is the most often quoted Psalm or most often quoted Old Testament passage in all of the New Testament. It's quoted more times in the New Testament than any other Old Testament text. And uh, just doing some devotional reading last night in bed, uh, I was going through the gospels and I came across Psalm 110. Psalm 110. Several times I was just going through the Gospels. I thought, wow, it is there a lot. <laughs> you know, it's like, where have I been? <laughs> right? It is there. But notice, notice um, verse 13, how it ends, right? It says, but to which of the angels has he ever said, watch this now, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Well, that's the way the passage began, remember? Look at uh, verse 3. After... It says, uh, where, where am I at? When he had made purification of sins, watch this, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Same passage. He's not quoting it directly. This is not a citation, which you would not expect him to quote it directly. Guess why? Because in verses 1 through 4, remember, he's, in a sense, he's summarizing the whole book, the whole argument of the book. So all, what you have here is an allusion to Psalm 110, which is quoted at the end of the chapter. And this is what, um, this is what theologians call an inclusio. An inclusio. This is a U. An inclusio is when the same text, when the same text, uh, Psalm 110, verse 1, begins and ends uh, a letter. So really, it's kind of like, uh, so it begins at verse Three and it ends at verse, what is it, 13, mm-hmm. right? And it kind of forms a bookend to the whole argument. He begins with Christ sitting at the right hand of God, and he ends the argument with Christ sitting at the right hand of God. Mm-hmm. You see that? So why is that important? Because this is why it's important. Because the speech of God that came, just look at it, let's just look at the text together, okay? Let's just look at what the author of Hebrews is giving us right here, okay? This, everything has to do, the thrust of this has to do with God's speech, right? God after he spoke, right? 
uh, and long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions in many ways in these last days once again has spoken and the aorist tense there is an aorist that implies finality right that god in christ has brought the final revelation through his son right but what i'm arguing is this is that the same message that was given unto the fathers that the fullness of which has come in Christ is the same message about the dual estates of Christ. So when Christ is depicted, right, as he is depicted as the radiance of God's glory, as he is depicted as the exact representation of his nature, let us not forget what it has just been said in verse 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son. This is not a throwaway sentence, by the way. Whom he appointed heir of all things. You see that? This language of inheritance. Well, what do you think the language of inheritance is getting us ready for? Right? And also notice that he was appointed. What is that speaking about? Anybody? Think out loud. No wrong answers here. Well, maybe. The new, the new creation. The new creation? So basically, I guess what I'm trying to argue is this, is that the reason why, um, the reason why Jesus's airship, right, is referenced here is because it shows us that in fact, what Jesus had to do as we go from old revelation to new revelation, as it were, right, to long ago to these last days, what spans all of that redemptive territory, right, in Scripture, is both that Jesus had to suffer and that Jesus was going to be exalted. Part of Jesus being exalted is the fact that he was promised an inheritance, he is the heir of all things. Now, where in the Old Testament is Jesus promised to be the heir of all things? David and the Psalms? That's a safe answer. <laughs> the Psalms, right? That's right. That's right. Any passages that come to mind about that? I'll, I'll give you one. Psalm 110. <laughs> right? Psalm 110 promises us that the Messiah would, in fact, rule over his enemies, right? Uh, that's just one. Any other passages where, where the Son is prophetically or typologically given an inheritance? Yes, sir. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Therefore, I will allot him a portion of the great, yes. and he will divide the booty with the strong. Amen. Now keep reading that. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Yeah, that, 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 uh, that causal phrase there, because, right, he poured himself out to death. Right? How does it say it? Yeah. Because, yeah. He, poured because he poured himself out to death. What that's telling us is the same thing that Hebrews is telling us. So Hebrews and Isaiah are working in total perfect parallel with one another. 
Hebrews is telling us the reason why he is the heir of all things, the reason why this one who is the radiance of his glory, the exact nature, right, the one who upholds the world by his power, right, the reason why he's going to inherit all things, divide the booty with the strong, is because he made purification of sins, is because he poured himself out to death. You see the pattern? So what the authors of the New Testament saw, I believe, is over and over that at the heart of the gospel, at the heart of the gospel, is the dual estates of the Messiah, of Christ. Right? Um, maybe one text. Did you, did you have a hand? Somebody have a hand? Yes, sir. Uh, Joel, chapter 2. Okay. Okay, what does it say? Yeah, that's apocalyptic, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and it certainly has to do with Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection and his coming, right? The day of the Lord kind of is a broad umbrella phrase that kind of covers uh, not just the end of the world, but also what was inaugurated in Christ, what was introduced, what was began. Uh, that's why you have Joel chapter 2 being cited, for example, in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost as an example of the inauguration of the end Right? That's why in, in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter makes it clear that Joel's uh, prophecy had begun fulfillment, even the blackening out of the sun, even the falling of the stars. That's very apocalyptic. Like, well, you know, you can sit there at Pentecost and think to yourself, wait a minute, I mean, sun didn't fall from the sky. I mean, or, you know, the stars didn't fall out of the sky in Pentecost. You know, the sun wasn't blacked out. You know what I mean? These, this kind of language, but it's all part of that day of the Lord theology. But um, I'm thinking of, for example, Luke 24, which is really crucial, I think, and we have from Jesus, and many of you maybe were thinking about this, we have from Jesus here an instance, I think, of what's known as divine necessity, right? Divine necessity. Uh, It is a passage where Jesus makes it explicit what we're talking about here. He says, verse 25, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe, and all the prophets have spoken. Notice that. Jesus, in a redemptive historical fashion, Jesus is saying what the prophets have spoken. Right? Just like Hebrews. Right? Um, And Hebrews is telling us that God spoke through the prophets. Right? He says, watch this now. Was it not necessary... That day, that, that, that word day, is here in a, in a context like this is what theologians would say is a divine necessity. There's a divine constraint behind the words that Jesus is speaking here. It must be um, not in the sense of Jesus not being pragmatic. Oh, this is what needed to take place in order for me to be able to do what I was supposed to do, right? No, when Jesus says it was necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter, watch this, and to enter into his glory. So he goes from a state of suffering to a state of glory, and he says what is behind that is divine necessity. 
So the divine necessity there is grounded in the decree of God and the prophecies that God gave. So this is why, uh, let's, let's try to understand this carefully here. This is why what theologians are saying is that what the Old Testament presents us is what is required of the Messiah. Does that make sense? What is required of him. The typology that is given to us in the Old Testament, the shadows, the types, sacrifices, what this is presenting to us is a requirement that Christ had to fulfill, right? So the Old Testament typology requires the work of Christ in his death and in his exaltation. That's what the Old Testament typology really is all about. Any questions, comments, statements? Anything? I don't want to be the only one talking, seriously. I know that doesn't sound like it's true, (laughs) but it is true. I really don't. Um, Anything that you guys would add to the idea that um, what God reveals in Hebrews chapter 1, for example, uh, in verse 1, as we go from the fathers to what God speaks in these last days, any ideas there in terms of what God is doing in Revelation? In redemptive history, like do you when you see that, do you see more of a continuity or a discontinuity? Maybe that's a good question for us. Right? Like when you read that, do you see more that the author is trying to emphasize a continuity or a discontinuity? Which means is he trying to say that what God spoke in the last days has to do with what God spoke in the prophets, or is is it saying that what God spoke in the last days is in contrast to the prophets? No, the first one. The first one? Yeah, that's the impression I get is that as he's going back to what they were all talking about, and that, you know, here it is, the fulfillment. Okay, so more of a continuity. Yes. Okay, right? Like I said earlier, there's both, Right? But I just want to know, like, what you emphasize. I was just simply going to say that this is a, a direct connection of all that has been done in the past into who Christ is, meaning that everything that was spoken of was about this particular person, mm. Jesus Christ. Mm. So it, it not only uh, was uh, is con- is continuous. Right. With, with him, but it's like you said earlier, it's the finality in him, uh, meaning this was the point of it all. It's fulfillment language. Fulfillment language. So it's kind of like what we said before, right? That what, what we're being given in a redemptive historical approach is both a Christ um, Christocentric and Christotelic. That's right. That's right. And what is Christotelic, Robert? That he is the goal. Correct. That he is the goal of it all, right? And what is? how does that differ from Christocentric? He is the center of it. He's the, um, the, the main point rather than okay. simply the end result. Got it. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, so last one, right? So creator... I just wanted to emphasize this, that creator, uh, Christ as creator in Hebrews has more to do uh, than just with his deity, that Jesus is divine. 
To say that Jesus is creator is to say that he is divine, right? There's no question about that. But what the author of Hebrews does contextually, in the context, he's not debating an atheist, right? He's not debating a, a Jehovah Witness. What he's doing is he's setting forth Christ as creator in order to emphasize his dual estate, right? That the one who created everything is also the inheritor of all things, right? And the fact that he is going to inherit all things means that he must get to a place of exaltation, right? Now, finally, Christ the Redeemer, with a little bit of time that we have left here, Christ's exaltation as creator is inseparable from his role as a humble redeemer. So the one relates to his state of exaltation. uh, The other one relates to his state of humiliation. That's right. And and really what's going on here too is is that there's a couple things that Christ as redeemer is connected to. There's a couple things that we can emphasize. There's a covenantal dimension and then there is an an instrumental redemption. In other words, instrumental meaning that through his redemption, Christ would achieve his exaltation. You see that? It was after making redemption that he would achieve his state of exaltation. Right? We've made that kind of clear. Um, let's go to, uh, back to Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, just to show you again how the book of Hebrews, um, this would be an interesting study. Find all the places in Hebrews where Christ goes from a state of humility to a state of exaltation. Right? This is one. Verse 9. But we do see him who was made a little lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus, because of the suffering, or because of the suffering of death, watch this, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10. For it was fitting for him. Um, that's a big, that's a big uh, statement there. It was fitting for him. What do you think that means? <laughs> you know, um, is the author of Hebrews saying, you know, it makes sense for him to do this, <laughs> right? Uh, when he says it is fitting for him, uh, fitting uh, how? Fitting in light of what? Yes. What's that? The chosen, well, it does have to do with election because it is how he will bring his sons to glory. That's right. Is there anything else? It is fitting for him. Prophetically, like you're saying, it was prophesied that he would do all of these things, so it's fitting for him to be the one to fulfill. Yeah. Almost out of necessity. Again. Yes. It's no uh, coincidence that this passage is sandwiched in between two Old Testament citations, right? Two prophecies, right? One coming out of Psalm, what is that? Psalm 8, then verses 5 through 9, 5 through 8, and then in Psalm 22. It was fitting for him for whom are all things, there it is again, there's the language of inheritance, and through whom are all things, there's the language of creator, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Right? So God is, um, yeah, God is here perfecting uh, not only the Son through humility and exaltation, but also um, us as well. He's going to bring us through the same 
pattern that he brought his son. And actually, Isaiah 53 is the next passage that I had there. It is also covenantal in that what constrains all of these things, I believe, um, is that Christ is in a covenantal relationship with God. Uh, For example, uh, in the Old Testament, it is the fact that God is in covenant with with the Son, uh, that makes sure that all of these things are going to happen. Let me give you some verses on this. Uh, Psalm 89, for example. Psalm 89. If you haven't studied Psalm 89 or looked at it deeply, I encourage you to really look at Psalm 89 because it's really crucial just to see that what was um, what, what what happened in David. You might not get these explicit um, sort of teachings, let's say in First and uh, Second Samuel. First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, dealing with the Davidic kingdom, right? But Psalm eighty-nine ex- makes it explicit that what was happening in David was, in fact, a messianic covenant. Yes, everybody get that? <laughs> what was happening in David was, in fact, a messianic covenant, right? Look at uh, look at verse three. I've made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. Uh, In the same way, uh, Psalm 89, verse 27, 29. Verse 27 and 29. I also shall make him my firstborn. Prototokos in the Greek, Septuagint. It means the preeminent one, right? That's really ultimately what it means. The highest of the kings of the earth. My loving kindness, I will keep him forever. Uh, for him forever. Watch this. And my covenant shall be confirmed to him. Watch this now. So I shall establish his descendants. How many of you have descendants there in that verse? Forever and his throne as the days of heaven. You know, the Hebrew word there for descendants is actually descendant. Or actually, more literally, seed. Singular. Right? Um. That is remarkable because in the book of Luke, we have these exact same pro- or this exact same prophetic line of thinking being fulfilled in and by Christ. Uh, let me just read this for us quickly here as we close. He, um, Luke chapter one, after the angel comes to Mary. And you see how she responds. Uh, It says there in verse 32, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Right? Zacharias did the same exact thing. Thing, as he connected it back not only to the Davidic kingdom but also to the Abrahamic or the Davidic covenant but also to the Abrahamic covenant. Amazing. This is what I mean that what's behind all of this language in Hebrews 1 through 4 is not just prophecy being fulfilled but it is also the covenantal relationship Jesus has with his father. And that is what is behind the humility and the exaltation of Christ as God takes his son who he appointed the heir of all things from a state of suffering to a state of glory, right? 
Any any other questions? I only have about three other pages of notes here that we'll never get to. <laughs> yes? No? Nobody? Yes, sir? Uh, just really simplifies again and again how all of Scripture is Christian Scripture. Amen. And nothing is like, oh, that's for the Jews or something like that. It's all, all points to Christ. Mm-hmm. It goes back to Christocentric and Christotelic ideas that from Genesis to Revelation... Those, are, those two themes are prevalent on every page. Right. Yeah. It's encouraging. Yeah. Yeah, like I was reading, um, I was reading uh, Schreiner in uh, his book on biblical theology, and I was going through First and Second Samuel, because I don't personally know a lot about First and Second Samuel. It's like off the top of my head. I don't think I know a lot about that. But he just shows how the opening song of Hannah and then the closing song of David at the end of those books are really sort of the bookends of the entire theology of First and Second Samuel. And what it all has to do with is the promise of a humble king who will rule his people. <laughs> you know? And so you tend to wonder, like, wow, Christocentric, Christotelic, First and Second Samuel. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's what it's all about. Right, and there's actual parallels between the two songs that show you that whoever wrote First Second Samuel, probably Samuel, right? He he um, he. Okay, we can argue how much did he know, but he certainly designed his book in a Christocentric fashion, a messianic way, yeah. you know. And uh, anyway, just remarkable stuff. All right, let's go to worship. Thank you, guys. Yes, ma'am. <coughs>